Hey, welcome to The Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFove. And I'm Lorianne McKenna. We are professional screenwriters. We've worked together as a team and separately. We've worked on studio and indie films, live action and animation, from my work on Inside Out and Captain Marvel. To my work in Pixar's story department on Up, Brave, and Inside Out. We are here to share our insights on the craft of screenwriting and also the life. How to not only survive the ups and downs, but thrive. We want to help you become the best screenwriter you can be and to reassure you that you are not alone on this journey. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Today, uh, we are thrilled to be chatting with one of Hollywood's most well-known and respected screenwriters, Vanessa Taylor. Vanessa is a prolific writer in both TV and film, having worked on original shows like Alias, Game of Thrones, Divergent, and Hillbilly Elegy. She shares an Oscar nomination for Professor Original Screenplay with Guillermo del Toro for 2018's Best Picture winner, The Shape of Water. And we're going to talk about all of the nuts and bolts of her extensive and impressive resume. We're very excited uh, that you're here. Welcome, Vanessa. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. We're so excited to have you here with us. Um, one of my favorite people in the world. Thanks. Oh, um, so nice to have you. Uh, but before we do, uh, we, we're going to talk about our week or what we like to call adventures in screenwriting. Lorian, how was your week? My week was great. Uh, we are three <laughs> weeks into the writing room, into the writer's room, which is really fun. Um, and uh, Wednesday, I decided to go in person into the production office. Ooh. I put on hard pants and the shirt, and I put on a whole outfit, and I went into the production office. It was very exciting. There was two other people there, and uh, at first it was like, "Yay! Look at me! I'm in person in an office with other people, and I got to drive here." And then there were other people there, and I love people. I've been desperate to get out of my house and go be around other people, and it was oddly exhausting in a way that I am not used to being the extrovert that I am. I I've been craving this, but something changed during the pandemic. Maybe you've become an introvert. Welcome I, to our side. I, I don't think so. I took one of those tests, uh, the Myers-Briggs test, and it was extrovert was like as far as it could go. So now maybe I've corrected like two clicks in, but like still off the charts. But yeah, I, yeah, something happened where just the people being around sort of, but I kind of got a teeny glimpse of, oh, this was you know, it's like for an introvert yeah. that it is oddly draining because I'm used to just like feeding off the souls of everyone around me and like <laughs> sucking up all the energy. But this took work in a way that I wasn't used to. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was great because it's so much easier to solve problems and get answers when the person's right there. Hey, can we talk about this instead of like the email or can we jump on a Zoom kind of thing? But so it was good. And then I I got home and I took off my hard pants as soon as I could and put on my sweatpants again. And I was like, ah, yes. Are we calling them hard pants now? Is that like <laughs> I thing? call them hard pants. If they're zippers, <laughs> it's zipper hard pants. <laughs> I mean, don't we, isn't it hard pants and soft pants? I mean, I feel like that this is it, the, it, the, the pandemic same. has changed many things. I, I <laughs> we have a new language for pants. Yeah. Um, but it was good to get out and I probably won't be going back because <laughs> I feel much more comfortable in my office at home. I get a lot yeah. done. I don't have to keep shutting my door when I need to like be loud and shouty yeah. in the writer's room. And um, yeah, but my week was good. We got a ton done, which I'm really excited about. 
Um, I continue to learn a lot. I continue to be faced with what am I doing wrong? Mm. And then not having time to deal with it and just keep pushing forward. Um, (laughs) But uh, it's, it's good. Um, Yeah. I can't even remember anything else. I am experiencing some kind of uh, adrenaline spike today because I've broken out an eczema and I don't know why. Like my hands are super bumpy and itchy and I'm not quite sure why. I'll probably have to think about that. Maybe it was seeing all those people. (laughs) I was like, oh no, I have introvert hives. (laughs) Maybe it's a good point, Vanessa. But uh, yeah, my week was productive and... uh, fun with ups and downs, man, the ups and downs are extreme, right? I can start a day on a high and then by noon, I'm like, rather frazzle, fuck, fuck all this. Yeah, welcome to TV. And then I, yeah. by like three o'clock, I'm like, this is amazing. Woo, we're wow. doing it. And it's just like these extreme yeah. spikes, which I need to figure out how to manage because it's like exhausting. <laughs> Vanessa, you remember, don't you? Kinda. As she was saying that, I was thinking, I didn't really have any highs. <laughs> I mostly was just like low or freaked out. I think that's why I went to movies. But um, yeah, I it may have to do with that extrovert thing, by the way. Um, yeah. How was your week, Vanessa? It's been great. You know, I, I've been dealing with a couple things this week. One, I'm working on a project with a partner, which I don't do very often, like an actual writing partner. And I'm always, um, I think of myself as a person who should write alone because I really don't play well with others in that context. But it's so great to have a partner. It's so great to have a partner who's more knowledgeable than you are about certain things and just someone to bounce things off. I mean, it's really, I'm really enjoying it. So I'm, I'm really grateful for that situation. And um, we're also in a week where we don't have childcare. And so I am feeling a lot of, wow, I have so many things I'd like to be doing and writing if I had more than two hours. (laughs) And so that is an interesting, I mean, I have some of that all the time, but this week it's very extreme. Mm. The the mom writer. Yeah. And also the gratitude that normally we do have childcare and that's wonderful and I can get something done, but like, oh yeah, this is, it's tricky. Yeah. It's tricky. Even when they're teenagers still can happen. Yeah. What about you, Meg? Um, I'm in that stage that Ed Solomon, when he came on described where you've turned the script in and you have exactly as many pages of the script. That's how many minutes you have from going from relief to, oh my God, I'm sure they hate it. You know that moment where you're yeah. like, this is good. We did such good work. We're so proud of it. And then you're like, oh my God. And it doesn't make any sense because I was an executive. I know that nobody can call you until they've all spoken to each right. other yeah. because they all have to have a consensus around direction and blah, blah, blah. So I know that, but it doesn't matter to my writer brain at all. It's yeah. like, oh my God, they have not even called us in a week. Holy shit. They hate it. Blah, blah, blah. But you know, that's just yeah. normal writer brain. Um, on a different project, the director got notes, which I would consider very late in the process. Um, she's on her way. And at first everybody was kind of like, oh my God, what's happening. And what's interesting is everybody kind of wanted the notes to go away. And yet when she applied them, it was better. It was better. So it's one of that great, you still keep having that learning curve, no matter where you are in this process and how long you've done it, that just try the note, just try it. And, uh, it really was better. Um, And then the last thing I'll say, (laughs) my son came into my room while I was watching my show, as I call it, which is my downtime, which is my me time. And he's really upset about something. 
So I'm like, okay, what's happening? Did he like talk to a girl? What happened? Right. And he's so emotionally upset. And I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, I shouldn't tell you, but I'm going to tell you there's this guy online and he's reviewing Luca. He has a million followers, mom. He has a million followers and he's reviewing Luca by saying how bad the good dinosaur was. And he called, and he called the good dinosaur writing incompetent, incompetent. And he's like, and I'm literally sitting here thinking, oh my God, dude, why do you have to tell me this? And like, we've had a long conversation on a side about what you need to tell people and what you don't need to tell people. But it just, it just brought it all back, right? Like it just, because there are a lot of people who love the good dinosaur and there are people who are not fans of it. And that happens anytime you do a creative project, anytime, right? Sometimes you get super lucky, especially as a writer, because you have so little control over much, right? And sometimes you get super lucky and the gods smile on you and all it all just comes together for everybody because nobody, by the way, wants to make anything other than something super spectacular and that everybody likes. And the gods come together like on inside out, in my opinion, and a, a large majority of people like it. Even if there are still fans, not fans of that movie, of course, because there's human beings in the world. Um, but boy, it was, ama- I was a little bit disappointed how much it still hit. Uh, and I had, and, and now I'm a mom, right? So I don't want to, I don't want to mirror to him that I care. <laughs> so I'm trying to be like, it doesn't matter. Don't listen to those people. That's just one person's opinion, a million followers, mom. And I'm like, I don't, you should see the comments. I read all the comments oh, and, and no. I, people were just piling on. And I was like, this is anxiety food right now. You right. are an, an, ad, an, an addiction to anxiety. Mm-hmm. And this is great food for that. So, but I, I don't want that food. I, this is why I don't read that stuff. And you need to go away. And it was great to have a conversation with him about what I, my goal is, which is have your opinion. But the truth is anybody who speaks like that about a movie just tells me and anybody in this business actually making things that you don't make things. <laughs> That's right. You know what I mean? Like I off, I'm all for criticism, but the kind of piling on yeah. That just, to but, me, yeah. if once you've done it in, in your life and you know how hard it is to do anything, you have respect for anybody who got through the, to the finish line. I'm sorry, you well, just do. Some of it is so vitriolic instead right. of really seeming thoughtful and, I, you know, some of it just feels snarky and mean. And I also, when you were talking, it made me think about how you could have done 15 great films and then you have one where people don't like it or some people don't like it. And you still feel that same, you know what I mean? It's not like you remind yourself that right. there were 15 great films. You just feel right. crummy for a minute. And you get a little defensive one. inside and you want to call. I literally was like, I, maybe I was going to email this guy and I'm going to be like, hey, let's have a conversation. You just called me incompetent. So let's have a conversation. And my son was like, I don't think you should do that. I was like, I'm not going to do that. I'm just telling you, but I feel like I should. You know, it is part of, I bring it up because- for our listeners and you know everybody else can speak to this as well as a writer this is going to happen because you aren't the one executing it you don't have control over it and even by the way when they're amazing people like pete stone you know sometimes you don't have enough time to bake it or by the way people just don't like what you like i personally love the good dinosaur i'm super proud of it it's not everybody's cup of tea that's fine uh there is you have to kind of i think I guess what I'm trying to say is we talked a lot to our emerging writers about take notes, blow it up, go again, take notes, blow it up. 
that is also building your muscle so that when you hit the big leagues and you start getting this kind of stuff, you have, you'll always be somewhat vulnerable to it. I just think that's because you're a human being, you're a writer, you have a big heart, but you do have to uh, put on your big girl pants. Let's use use pants metaphor again and be like, this is the job. This is the job. Put on your hard pants. Hard pants. Our big girl hard pants. And this is the job, right? And pants are uh, the hardest pants. You know, I want to defend that movie because I love it. And yet you have to just shrug your shoulders and be like, whatever. I mean, Vanessa, am I, what do you think about What I also think, yes, 100%. But I also think one of the secrets, or maybe it's not a secret, maybe everybody knew this but me, but what I feel like is the true secret to survival in Hollywood is the ability to accept, like, let's say you did something and you didn't like it either. Let's say you were just disappointed. No one likes it, you don't like it, you're sad, it didn't work out. And so you have to be like, bummer, that didn't work out. And then literally the next day, you have to be off and running on whatever it is you're doing and you can't hold on, you can't go back and do a redo, you can't like litigate the thing. It's just over. And I think that ability to let go is what allows you to survive. I've seen people get caught up in these things and sort of bogged down. And I just think it's all about keep walking, keep walking, keep walking. You know, keep writing, this, stuff keep all, this stuff happens all the time. Either you wrote something great and nobody cares about it, or you wrote something terrible and everyone's mad at you, or like there's a million different ways this can all fall apart. The only thing to do is just to keep going and be like, well, whatever, it didn't work out. Next time, maybe it will. I agree with you that like sometimes you get so lucky and there are so many factors and sometimes you get all the good factors and sometimes you get the bad ones and you just got to keep going. And it's, well, I cannot remember the name of the, the listener who on our Facebook page mentioned this and I'm, maybe I'm sorry, I'll we'll maybe put it in the notes when we find his name. And he talked about, and I think he's a, a right, you know, it's not just emerging writers, but uh, pro writers listen and jump on the page. And he was talking about how, the, the other transition is you have to get back into the dream state of this is great. What I'm writing is great. Even though my son is telling me that a guy who has a million followers is trashing something that I wrote, I within an hour have to go and write something that I have to go back into the naivete and the dream state of this is great. And it, I, this has possibility. And, and that to me, there is that transition back, uh, can be a bit bumpy, but you have to do it. You just have to sit down. And even though I'm totally, sometimes totally fooling myself. And I, some part of my is like, you do not, you're just, I'm sitting there. I'm sitting there and I'm just hacking at it. You just got to keep hacking at it. So. Well, I think you also have to understand that each piece of writing has its own life. So even if let's say you wrote something, you were ultimately disappointed in yourself that has no relationship to the next thing you're right like everything is written in different circumstances so i've written lots of things where i was like oops that didn't work but it doesn't mean the thing i'm working on now doesn't work i i think you have to be willing to not cast yourself in that light just because otherwise you'd be afraid to experiment right so i hear you say it's about it's not shaking on the role of it like that's my role it's that's my character it's like that's the project I right. wrote it's something a, that didn't work out for whatever reasons, but I still have the skills and talents I have. That right. piece and so, is the identity piece, right? Like I am not my writing, um, which when you write something successful, you know, I've seen, 
right? <laughs> You're like, I am my writing. I'm great. Well, and then the, the impulse is to give everyone else the credit. I've watched this like at the Oscars and like award shows or people I know. It wasn't like, me. I was yeah. a part of a team. This was a group effort, right? But right. when it doesn't work out, it's you. Yeah. The right, know, right? <laughs> right? So it was true. you. And you have to sort of sit there in it, right? Even I if know. it wasn't your idea, even if it was a director's idea, it was the director's vision that changed it or what the actor or whatever, but like the writer then takes all the blame and the responsibility. Well, Right? Plus you're swimming downstream because everyone wants to give you that blame. So if you want to take it, they are happy to hand it off. Whereas <laughs> everybody thinks it's a big success. So it's you like know, you have to, happy to let you give it back to them. Yeah, you have exactly. to learn how to take some of the credit if it does well and some of the responsibility if it does not well so that you can keep your equilibrium and not right. go raging ego, but also not bottom out. So as a writer, I find that incredibly challenging, right? To keep, to find, how do you, so how do you, Vanessa, find that middle place where you can keep next hour, you can jump back into a new project? I think part of it is, you know, like, so the last movie I did was not well reviewed and I was really sad. I had spent a long time and it was close to my heart. And my first reaction was like you were describing Meg, very defensive, like And I had to really stop and think, okay, how much of this is true? Like to me, how much, how much do I agree with what these people are saying? And in those cases, how much do I own? So are there mistakes here I can learn from? Is there something I would have done differently? You know, like that part I want to own privately. Not, not to anyone else. I don't want to go around telling people I'm doing that. Because um, I think publicly you should own as little as you possibly can of anything that anyone has said about. There's just no good PR upside to that. But, so um, Meg should not oh, send an open letter. I should time. not. I should, I'm not. Going. Yeah. But I think that ultimately something that I find helpful is in general, I have a sense of whether I like my own writing or I don't. Like I have a sense of whether something's good or it's not good. And sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. And so I am able to get back to a place of like, okay, well, here's what I know is true. And then sort of continue from there. And even though in the moment I may get knocked by whatever, I eventually get to a place of either, hey, I did a good job on this thing and maybe people didn't understand it, but whatever, like, I'm just going to keep going or, you know, I really could have done better there and here's how, and I understand that. And I, the, the further I get into this career, the happier I am to have more of a skill set and the ability to be more of a diagnostician. So it's not quite as mysterious when something doesn't work. I'm not standing there going, oh, what happened? Which I think I was for a long time. But now I'm like, oh, I see what happened, you know, and Mm. I can either fix it or I can't. But it's just, it's a, it's a more solid footing and it certainly makes it more enjoyable for me. And I, you know, everybody falls off their equilibrium, but I think it helps me to stay a little more grounded. And that diagnostician can come because you've earned that diagnostician by writing a lot and going up and down in those swings that Lauren was talking about. And so you well, do- you've earned it by failing. By, too. Yes, I by feel failing. like one of the ways I've earned a lot of story skills is by breaking stories that didn't work and then saying, well, what happened? Why didn't this work? Right. 
but failing over and over and over. I mean, not a fun, I remember years ago thinking, I'd like to have better story skills and then not anticipating how crummy the experience of getting better story skills would actually be. <laughs> Carefully wish for <laughs> Like horrible, yeah, it was horrible. Um, but I'm really happy to have somewhat better story skills. So hope all our listeners heard that. That is, I have a that question cool. about that, the difference between TV and features, right? So I'm in a room right now and sometimes we can't crack something. And usually what happens is we have to pull back and ask a different question, right? So it's like, why can't we, you know, we're hammering at this thing and then, oh, wait, we're coming at it from the wrong way. Let's back up and ask a different question. And that usually resets everybody's brain mm -hmm. to solve a different problem, which is great because it's collaborative and you got lots of voices and trying things out. So as a feature writer, let's say when you're not working with a partner, how do you how do you do that without, you know, someone else in the room saying, hey, we need to ask a different question, you know, that, that sort of pull, the you're just talking who, to yourself and your dog person who pulls the stopper out of the drain, right? How do you learn how to do that for yourself? So I usually know something has gone wrong, right? I can usually get that far. And then I think, okay, where did it go wrong? And then I look and say, okay, here's where it went wrong. What happened? Oftentimes I'll ask myself, what would actually happen? Because sometimes when you're writing, I think you're writing to try to get to a result. So instead I'll go back to, okay, I'm trying to get to this result and it's all feeling fake. What would actually happen in the moment I've created? Is that where I went wrong? That these people are doing something that doesn't make any sense? Um, or, and this is sort of random, but I'll take a period of time like an evening when I wouldn't normally be working and I'll take a notebook, so not my computer. So now I'm not working in the script. I'm just hanging out with myself. And so these casual, so casual. So casual, <laughs> wine, no, just kidding. Um, and then I'll ask myself a series of questions on the paper. What would this person be doing? Why is this happening? What's this? Like, and just try to get to the bottom of like, what's supposed to be here? And how did this wrong thing get here? and just try to find a new direction. And so you're brainstorming by yourself. It's pretty lame, but like, I think that is kind of what you're doing. And for me, a notebook is much better because I think I type faster than I handwrite. And so a notebook gives me time to actually think ab about the answers to these questions. But it is a series of questions to me. So sort of the notebook sort of takes the urgency of typing in the script out of it, right? It I think, and it puts it me in a different mental space. And I read about this somewhere recently. I didn't know this was an actual thing. I think it's called found time. And it was the idea that like, well, it's in the evening and I'm not really working. So I don't need to get any result. Like I don't need to write five pages. I'm just sitting here. So whatever comes up, comes up. And so it takes all the pressure off it so that I can just be like, I wonder what happened, you know? And I find that if you have enough distance and time you can get the answers. I think where a room is great, and of course this is necessary for television, is like, I can't always get those answers fast by myself. Um, so if you have a bunch of people, you can come around to it, I think, mm -hmm. but much harder when you're by yourself. And if I have two or three days to you know, put something aside, I can usually get an answer, but sometimes you need it in like a day. <laughs> and so then you're a little stuck. Um, I'm going to go to some questions from our listeners because everybody was so excited that you were coming on. They asked lots of questions Aww, on the hey. Facebook page. Um, something that people always ask when we have writers on and Bob specifically asked this time is, do you outline? So you're going to start a project. 
you know, it's a, it's a process question. Do you have the same process every time? Does it depend on the project? What is your process? So I don't have the same process every time. There's a couple different scripts I've done more like with a what if, just a what if starting and then seeing what played out and um, kind of knowing where the end point was. But that I would describe as more of an indie film vibe, right? So it's not so plot dependent. If I have something that's more plot dependent, I tend to do kind of like tent poles. Like I'll have, you know, the end of act one and the midpoint, the end of act two and something about act three maybe. And then I'll do what is really more like a beat sheet because for me doing a full fleshed out outline, unless it's just so plotty and needs to be perfect, I find that it takes a little of my excitement. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'd prefer to do a beat sheet so that I know what's gonna happen in the scene, but I've really only listed it as like one sentence. Right. Or like with an add-on. And also we meet cousin Clara or whatever. <laughs> but like, I just wanna know the bare bones. Um, and then oftentimes I'll do a first draft that's really more like an expanded outline. So it feels rushed. It feels just like, and then these guys came up and they did this thing and blah, blah, blah. like, it's just not, but it's just my way of sort of getting it out there so I can go back and review. And I find it so much easier to rewrite. So mm -hmm. I tend to do first drafts as fast as I can now. Cause I feel like, A, they're not going to be any good. So why waste your time? <laughs> and B, like I'd much rather have it on the page. That's a big morale boost. And it's also just easier because then I can see like, oh, this was a bad idea. Like I got to fix it. Like I can see it more. It feels skeletal um, more than a full draft. We call that a barf draft. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've heard that term and I haven't really embraced it, but yes. <laughs> or you can rewrite me. You can you can rewrite that term. Birth yeah, draft. Birth, birth draft. Birth like draft. I can't really wrap my head around either. No, because that's no. messy. And birth and barf are both so messy. Yeah. I like what you said though. That what you say to get it out really fast. So why why? Yeah. Well, I also feel like sometimes you lose excitement for something over time. Like if you there are a couple projects I feel like I've been trying to write for ten years because I'm like oh, I'll do more research on the Gilded Age now. And like, <laughs> and it never becomes anything. And I'm so frustrated because every time I do that, I turn around five years later and someone else has done it. And mm. it's like, well, that was so stupid. Like if I had just written a draft quickly, even if the research wasn't all there, I could have had something. So I'm right. trying to kind of get out of that. Habit. I find that inspiring because I'm having that exact problem right now on one of my passion think, projects. Yeah, I think that's so great annoying. advice because the tendency is like, I need to get this historically. It has to be perfect. What kind of yeah. chairs do they sit on? And it matters if what the windows look like. And it's like, nope. And then I just realized like, I'm so intimidated by that. I think there's other people who are great researchers and that helps them. But I just get freaked out and then it never gets finished. And then it's just nothing. So I feel like I'd rather have it be crappy and something and fix it later. Like you can add in research later. Mm -hmm. So, and know. how does it apply now when you're adapting something? Um, yeah, I mean, that's tricky because some of that has to be depending if it's nonfiction, it has to be realistic to what it is. But again, you can always go back and fix it after the fact. I'd rather do some research, do as much as I sort of can reasonably in a short period of time. And then get into kind of more of a flow of the thing and then go back and say, okay, well, these things were wrong and I can fix them. But I just find that putting in too many other elements to that first draft, whether it be wordsmithing 
or the extensive research. It just bogs me down and I just get kind of bogged down. <laughs> do you have anything that you like do as an, as somebody adapting um, that you have found super helpful uh, or? Yeah, I mean, of course I take the book and do, well, if it's nonfiction or sometimes fiction, I do a timeline of all the events that have happened and as well as like maybe events that happened that were not listed in the book that are relevant. Um, and then I also tend to do, depending on the book, I might do a breakdown of what happens in every chapter or every scene, depending how it's divided. Um, and then I really think carefully about POV mm -hmm. because that to me is always kind of the main thing and the sticking thing and like, what is your POV gonna be on this thing? Sometimes you know from the very beginning and it's really simple, but sometimes there are many different ways a story could be told and different POVs you could have. You could have it be multi-protagonist, you could have it be one protagonist, you could have it be in two time frames. you could have it be in one. Um, and so I really look to see like, what does this material kind of want to be mm. maybe? In the form of whatever you're doing, a feature, a TV show, whatever. Like it, exactly. It takes on a new- Because of course you can't actually adapt. I mean, when I get submitted things that could easily be adapted, it doesn't feel very interesting because you feel like, well, anyone could do that. And it's super simple. It's the ones where you're like, oh, I don't really know how to adapt this that feel to me like more interesting projects. Mm -hmm. um, but you got to put a lot of thought into what is that POV? So when you get submitted books, projects, essays, what are some other things that make you feel like I'm the one to do this? <laughs> um, oftentimes it has to do with theme. Like, what is this about? Is this about something that I find meaningful or that I've been thinking about or that I have anything to say about? You know, certainly there's things where you're like, this will be awesome for someone, not, you know, um, I think also more and more, I look at things to see if I think they're visually full of opportunity so that a filmmaker will be drawn to that. I'm not a director myself. And so I'm looking to have those partnerships. Um, and I look for things that have an engine. So there's some sort of propulsive elements. I kind of in a way view that as like an addiction. Like I kind of feel bad that I'm so interested in this propulsive element. I'd like to be able to do more pensive or moody pieces, but I've just become so, it's so much easier when there's an engine, like it's a thriller or something or a question, you wanna know the answer, like otherwise you're just climbing uphill and it's so exhausting. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe someday I'll feel confident enough to go back to that and feel like I can do it. But for the moment I look at it and think like, okay, does this have stakes I can understand that are gonna be easy to represent? Or am I just gonna be endlessly trying to explain to people why they should care? Mm -hmm. I think that's so interesting. But if you don't mind answering, why do you feel like you should be doing something else than what you're doing? Well, there are movies that I see that have less propulsion that are beautiful. Um, and I think some of that has to do with faith as the creator. Like you have faith that you have something interesting that you're fleshing out and that people don't need to move like a rocket through your story. Um, so I'd like to be available to those types of stories and I'd like to be able to do them. It's just that I find that I have this instinctive grab towards things that are going to make my life and work easier. 
Um, and so you rule out certain projects that might be really intriguing, but for whatever reason, I've just gotten sort of into the habit of saying like, okay, what makes it go? You know, why is it going fast? Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. Um, I, I think we all sort of have this idea of what we should be, what we should be yeah. doing, this thing I'm doing, even though I'm really good at it, it's not enough or you know that it should be something else instead of like you're really good at what you're doing like you're really good at it so that's okay too <laughs> you know I have kind of had this back and forth uh in my own mind about for for a long time I was really pointed in a very specific direction of like I only want to do this kind of work and um that's what I should be doing and I'm just gonna head straight there and if somebody offers me something else I'm gonna blow it off and I really feel like that approach drove me right into a ditch. And so now I'm much more open to what people bring me. But of course, you could go too far in that direction and never pursue. So I, I think it's a balance that's a little bit hard to find. Mm -hmm. um, because I do think it's great to look and see, is the world bringing me something? And, and something maybe I wouldn't have thought of, you know. So I don't know. That's so great. Rachel asked, as someone who's worked across genres, across TV, across film, you know, how did you manage that? Because a lot of our writers, be they pro or emerging, get worried about being pigeonholed. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, I worked on animation, so I get a lot of animation submissions, of course, you know, so it, it is a real thing out in our industry. Um, I don't think it's Machiavellian or anything. I think it's just what people know you as, right? Right. Um, what, what, in building this career that you have, you, you really have not gotten pigeonholed. Do you have a, a view on that? Well, I would actually adjust that slightly to say I have not stayed pigeonholed. Oh, okay. So I think that TV is a little easier, I think in some ways, because you can go from one show to another and maybe they're all dramas and they're all comedies, but they probably can have some variants and people are still not confused by you. Um, you could go to a procedural and then something else and they're like, wow, that person's so versatile, but they're not, you know, I think um, on the film side, every project I did resulted in a wave of submissions that were just like that project. And so initially it was romantic comedies and then it was young adult dystopian, you know, thriller, whatever. Um, and then it was sort of a more sci-fi. And so I think... I, I agree with you, like people make lists for projects and I've now done that myself where I've made lists of say directors who might be appropriate for a project. And I understand, like I do it too, right? You think about the last thing somebody did and that's what's on your mind. And then you put them on that list and you don't remember that 10 years ago they did something completely different. And so it takes a lot of creativity to sort of, um, I actually don't really think getting pigeonholed is something to worry about. I think if you're doing what you're doing well, that's great. And if people start asking you to do the same thing over and over, you can just say no, if you'd like to, or you could do something slightly different and make a bridge to something, okay. or you could just pivot by yourself because you're a writer and you can always write something new. Um, so I don't, I don't worry about getting pigeonholed. There, there were certain areas where they would like rom-com. I love watching rom-coms, but I don't love writing them. So when those were getting submitted to me, I was like, Ugh, this isn't really kind of where I'm at, you know? Um, so I did try to get out of certain spaces that didn't feel like they were a good fit. Mm. But I, I think you can always do that. Um, 
I, yeah, I just don't see it as being a huge, a huge problem. So what you're saying is that the industry is not in charge of defining you. You are. Yeah, and sometimes to they'll some try. Extent. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes they'll try and you can use that to your advantage sometimes, you know. Um, like I said, build a bridge. Like if they want you to do X, maybe you can do X with a little bit of this or with a director you think is great or, you know, um, there's ways to like sort of navigate those things. But I just think the important thing is to do good work because if people think of you as doing great work, they're not going to care. Even if you are pigeonholed, even if you're like, well, I did five sci-fi things that were all great. I don't think anyone's going to say, well, you can't do anything else. I think the greatness is the point. Right. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, so you've, the other thing you've done so well is both, you've both done your own original ideas and specs and creations. And you've also come on to other people's television shows and been on their team or worked with um, a director like uh, Del Toro, who, you know, uh, usually writes his own things. Right. Um, so what, what for you is the difference? What is the challenge and benefits of both of those sides? Or what's the experience like for you? Well, um, you know, to come on to a TV show that exists, or even that's coming into existence, you have to be a good mimic, right? Because you're mimicking someone else's voice, and you have to be able to get along with people. And you kind of have to be able to understand what someone wants and take the ball down the field, sort of. Um, and so that's one skill. And I think working with a director can be similar. Um, you're trying to, you know, if especially someone like Guillermo who had such a clear idea in his mind of what he wanted. So I think part of that is understanding what your job is, what you're meant to contribute. Um, what are the parameters of that? And, you know, really trying to rise to the occasion, but also stay in your lane when that's appropriate. And I think when you're creating your own thing, obviously there's this joy and freedom in it, but sometimes I've, I've been in a situation where I've found it kind of oppressive that I'm like, I'm creating my own thing. It has to be great. It's gonna be so good. And then it's always like, I throw it in the trash cause it's not good. Um, and there's just not enough boundaries. You know what I mean? Like I really am overjoyed. I loved working on staffs because I understood what the boundaries were. Like I got, it was sort of like an assignment in school. Like, write something that's three lines about X. Okay, I know exactly what I have to do. Um, the more freedom you get, it can be exciting, but also sometimes I think it, it actually like stifles creativity because you're like, well, if I could write anything in the world, I mean, that's just an overwhelming possibility, right? So there are things to be um, said for both, of course. For me, I'm not a huge idea generator. I have ideas, but I don't have like an idea every minute. And so I really only embark on original things if I feel some burning desire to write them. And I feel like I, more importantly, probably I understand what the beginning, middle and end are. Right, right, right. And what that engine is, as you talked about. Yeah. Jeff, did you want to ask your question? You're muted. Just <laughs> Um, as a way to kind of bridge the conversation about both collaboration and adaptation, you've done a lot of book adaptations and we talked about it a bit and inevitably when you're adapting a book, you're going to need to make changes for the medium. Um, I think of Thrones, like you were working on a property that was beloved by millions of people. And how do you trust your own voices and instinct as a writer, knowing that you're going to inevitably probably frustrate the fans of the original project? 
That's really tricky. And there are some projects where you simply do not have the freedom to do that. Like, um, I think if anyone had tried to make very significant changes to say Hunger Games, that would have been a big problem. Um, so you have to know what you're adapting and what kind of following it has. I think on Thrones, I was really lucky that David and Dan, the creators did not, they loved those books, but they didn't feel beholden to a fan base. They felt like they could do what they thought was best for the series and the series was different. Um, and I think you do have to trust sort of your dramatic instincts. Some of these things simply can't be adapted. Some of it because of time compression has to change even if you liked it, some of it has to change because you can't afford it. Um, and so I think, you know, my fiance showed me this chart that was about how much reality there was in these true story movies. And like the very, very best of them had like 47% reality or something. And it made me feel much better because I felt like, oh, okay, <laughs> I, that's all right. Like, I, so I think I probably err on the side of changing too much now, whereas I used to err on the side of changing too little. But the truth is when you change too little, you very quickly realize you are hamstrung and your thing is weird. It just doesn't work <laughs> out. Like, because a book is not a movie, you know, right. a book is not a TV show. And so if you try to stay too close, it's going to be unwieldy and it's going to keep you from making good creative choices that you have to make. So I, I really try to be more close to the spirit of something and retain things that I think are truly important that maybe the author would feel or the subject would feel were important. But I don't, I don't make a big attempt to sort of stick so tight. Hmm. Um, a lot of people, of course, you got nominated for an Academy Award. Yay. I have a beautiful screenshot off my TV when they asked all the ladies to stand up and you stood up and I was like, oh my God, grab it, take pictures quick. There she is. We have to send it to her. Um, so spectacular. It was so spectacular. Can you talk a little bit about that? How did it start? You know, um, what was the process like? So I, I think I got this call from my agent, I'm sure, saying... Um, and actually, I think the first time I had heard from Guillermo's manager was about a television project that he wanted to do. And I had um, just said, you know, this is not a subject area that is right for me. And so I don't need to meet with him to tell him that. Thank you. I'm a big fan, but it's just not, you know. And so the next time I heard from them, it was that um, Guillermo had something he had been working on and it was a passion project and um, he wanted to have a partner. And would I wanna hear from him what it was? So I met with him and I heard from him what it was and I really loved it. But as much as I loved the idea, I kind of loved where he was coming from. He was sort of describing like, you know, he's had this big career and he does, he has his hands in so many projects. And I think he really wanted to get back to just, um, I don't know. I, I think he wanted to tell a story he loved and do it in kind of a simple way. He wanted to keep control over all the elements of it, kind of put it together himself. And I really, that really spoke to me because I, obviously I was not, you know, as well established as Guillermo del Toro, but I was in a space where I felt like I had made some wrong turns and I wasn't quite sure what I was doing. And so I felt like, oh, I get it. We're kind of experiencing a version of the same thing. And so this could be a really good match. Um, and so we had 
two or three conversations about the project and ideas and I asked questions. And then I, I actually thought we were gonna have another meeting. And then I got a call that was like, basically Guillermo has left the country, you'll be starting. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, and so from then on out, we just, so he had like 20 pages of an outline and like 20 pages of dialogue, I think. And so um, I just started generating pages based on his outline. And I sent him 20 pages and he would send me. And then finally we had a full draft. Um, and then after that, we would go back and forth. And he had very specific ideas about a lot of the visual elements and the love story. And there were just a few pieces he hadn't really fleshed out yet. And I really ended up looking at it as sort of scaffolding in a way, like to scaffold the story. And also just someone, I think he wanted someone to kind of plan his sandbox. Like he didn't want to do it by himself. He wanted someone to bounce ideas and, um, did you as a writer, like what was your process? Because um, to put your, I mean, I, I believe, I mean, you might disagree that you, your, part of yourself has to go in. Like when you're writing with yeah. somebody who already has started the engine, right? If they, they've already created the, the, the train tracks and a couple of cars. I mean, that happens to writers right now, jump on. And yet you still have to put yourself into it. Right. But and you I always, may not be the engineer. And like, how, how did that work for you? So to me, that's part of the decision-making process in the beginning is, can I see myself in this? Like, could I write this? Do I get who these people are? Um, and I thought I did. And he said something to me at one point about one of his inspirations for this. And it was a Coen Brothers movie. And when he said it to me, I thought, oh, I totally get what he's doing. I 100%, I understand the context I understand, like I just, it sort of came into place and I thought, okay, I get it, I can do it. Um, and so, you know, from that point, and initially I had thought like, maybe he wants me to be, this was so dumb, but I, I thought like, maybe he wants me to be the story police. I'm just gonna come around and be like, this isn't logical. And then after a few, like a phone call of this, I was like, oh, he does not want that. That was a terrible idea. He wants <laughs> someone to come with some really cool ideas. That's what he wants. And so I had to kind of get my head in the game of like, all right, this is a guy who comes up with a lot of great ideas. I have to be in that space. That's where we're gonna do this together. Um, and so I tried to let myself be really out there in terms of like, if I had a weird idea, but I was like, eh, maybe he'll like this weird idea. I would just put everything in. Um, and then- Did you ever worry, did you guys ever have a discussion about audience? Like in terms of how unusual the story no, was? Never. or like never. never. He, he never even thought and of it. And that was very clearly not the agenda. The right. agenda was like, I have this idea that I really want to do. I want to do it the best way possible. That's what we're doing. There was never a thought of like, I mean, initially I had to say to myself, are people going to buy this? Like if they don't buy it, the movie's over. And he showed me some um, early art of the creature. And I thought, well, I don't know, but I know who this man is as a visual filmmaker and I believe in him and this is his problem, not mine. Right. So I believe he can solve this problem. So I'm just gonna go there. And if it turns out everyone's like, fish man, what? Like, whatever, you know, then we'll lose. But I thought I could bet on him. Um, so yeah, it was a good then, bet. It was a good bet. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> good bet. And then, so after that, after we had a full draft, he would send it back to me, and I usually only had the script for a few days. And he would be like, "Hi, you have this till Monday." And then I'd say, "Like, okay, what are the parameters of what I can do?" 
and he would say it needs a polish or like it it needs this or it needs that and so I would do as much as I could do in those days and send it back so it was a really interesting relationship because we barely talked we would just like he would know if I didn't like a scene because I would cut it right and I would know if he did not agree with me because he would put it back what was your favorite (laughs) part kind of like what was your emotional door in like what 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 did you love Where, where are you in it like you know who, what I really loved was, um, and this is so odd now that I think of it, but I loved the villain. Mm. I just thought, like, I got what his voice was. I understood why he was angry. <laughs> like, I, I felt like I, and I also really loved the fact that neither of the central characters spoke. Mm. Like, I thought that was great. Because to me, it was such a beautiful story. And the fact that all these people around them are yammering and yammering about nothing. And they're in the middle having a real story and a real relationship silently. I thought like, oh, I get it. I get it. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, And so therefore, all the talk was sort of stylized in a way that I felt I understood. Do you feel like you had any big visual storytelling lessons on that project specifically? Like any takeaways that you apply to future projects or advice for writers who love that kind of storytelling? Wow. It's hard to say because Guillermo is unique, I think, as a storyteller. He really, I mean, you can go through all his projects. The visual storytelling is so beautiful. It really looks like art, um, like paintings. So I don't entirely know. I don't think I took something specific away, but I do think that as I go through these projects, I used to be very auditory. And so I would just hear dialogue. It was almost like I was just writing down a series of conversations. And now I'm much more visual as a writer. Obviously I'm not stepping on director's toes because that's rude. Um, So I'm not telling them where to put the camera, but I am showing them something in a way that I used to just be like, and here's what it sounds like, good luck, (laughs) you know? Um, And now I'm much more specific that if I don't know what a scene looks like, I can't do it. We did have one listener, Sarah, ask specifically about the nonverbal nature of the movie in terms of as a writer, how you approach that. Uh... Yeah, so, I mean, I don't, you know, there's different sort of approaches to dialogue. There's dialogue in movies that's so beautiful, like Aaron Sorkin's dialogue to me is always so gorgeous. And like, I can barely think that fast as a writer. I definitely can't speak in those types of sentences as a person, Um, but I have great admiration for it on screen. And then there's this more naturalistic version, which is more similar, I think, to how most people actually talk. And it involves sort of like you repeat things, you stop sentences midway, like there's a lot of ellipses kind of in the dialogue. And that's more how I tend to write. And so in that um, version, dialogue is less central, I think. Um, And so for me, I felt like, okay, well, this is even less central. (laughs) They don't have any. Um, And I wondered if we would not have enough pages at some point. Um, But I figured they don't need it. I mean, she does, you know, she signs and someone's speaking for her. So she has a version of dialogue. Um, But it becomes so behavior based, right? Which I love, which I wish all emerging writers would write a silent film to learn that it's about the behavior. 
But it's kind of all the same, isn't it? You're either talking and expressing what you're doing or you're somehow expressing it. They're not just standing there. Right. So you just don't have one of the tools in your toolkit, right. but you got everything else and you got everybody around them. Well, it's such a good lesson for those of us who rely so much on dialogue, right? Yeah. I love dialogue and I write pages and pages and pages of it. And then I'm like, what are they doing? Where are they? You know, well, the interesting thing, too, is when you're focused on dialogue that way, which I sometimes am, you limit yourself in who you're writing about. So not everyone is very, very intelligent, educated, and a fast talker. So if you want to write a certain kind of dialogue, you have to write to those characters because it's not realistic if other people, you know. So then if you want to write other people, you have to get down with the fact that their dialogue may not sound like that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's such beauty in it, in hearing someone express something without those tools. Um, but it's just, I think, a different challenge. I think that's such a good point. We get asked sometimes on the Facebook group, like, how do you differentiate voices? Mm-hmm. And I always answer, like, well, where does the person come from? And what's their point of view? And what kind of mourning did they have? And how'd they grow up? And where's their mother from? And sort of it's so much about who that character is and what they bring. Yeah. So that not everyone sounds like you. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think early on I had that problem a lot. Oh, yeah. My master's thesis was just a bunch of 28-year-old <laughs> angsty grad students. So boring. I know. So it. boring. And then I the know. house burned down and everyone died because it was a right. grad school thesis. And that's how you end everything in grad school. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's amazing. Um one of our one of the last questions here, unless I'm f- missing something, you guys tell me. Um, I thought this was a nice question. Anna asked, "Do you believe all of our characters are manifestations of ourselves?" Hmm, that's such an interesting question. I believe you find yourself in every character, so you find something. So, like, let's say I was writing about a really horrible, bigoted, corrupt jerk. I don't think I am that person. But is there some part of me that has a prejudice about something or the desire to skip to the head of the line by being corrupt? Like, so I get to indulge whatever those elements are for a minute that I don't actually want to embody at all. So I think you have to be able to find yourself. If you can't find a single thing, if you can't relate on any level, I'm just not sure how you write a person. So I don't think they're versions of like, I wouldn't go that far, but I think they're little, they have little tiny like sparkles of us, I guess. And I find too that there's, there's pieces of me in there and then I'm fascinated by them. I know like, you're like, yeah, <laughs> but, but I kind of love them, but that's why I love them. Cause I'm fascinated by them. Like I can tell in movies that I don't think they do, they don't do well when the creators didn't love their characters even if they're yeah. heinous people there's some part of them that's either fascinated by it or yep. that, they, that they that there is a connection uh, to that yeah. character in you don't you think yeah and I think you're right you can feel it when you don't love a character and then their scenes go by too fast they're boring they don't feel differentiated that's oh, that's yeah. normal so how um we have three questions that we always end with but before we get there I want to ask one quick question which probably won't be quick but um you know, we're always encouraging people, you have to take notes, you have to take notes, even though it's hard to take notes, right? What's mm-hmm. your process of taking notes? So I write them all down. I, you know, like I take notes on every notes call myself. Um, and I, 
you know, sometimes you have to take notes that are not good because you're being forced to do that. And if I have to do that, I do the best version I can, or, you know, how they talk about finding the note behind the note. What are they asked? What are they actually having a problem with versus what they are saying is the fix? Oftentimes people will know that there's something wrong. They may misdiagnose it or they properly diagnose it, but tell you to fix it in a way that won't right. work. So I try to, I have leeway on that because I know that they want me to fix it. They don't really want me to put in a bad fix that they're going to later note differently. Um, but, you know, when I worked very early on with Greg Berlanti and people get so frustrated on TV shows with notes because you're exhausted and production's happening and it's, you know, so time consuming. But he always said, we take any good note. And I sort of feel that way too, like. To be open to notes because they're going to help you. And so I think about that and I try to take the good notes and make things better. I try not to do notes the same day I get them because I find that I'm defensive. So I get them and the next day I start them. And like I said, the ones that suck, I do the best version I can. I usually leave a couple where I'm like, just couldn't pull it off. But mostly I do the notes and I just make the best of it. And sometimes they really make something better. Um, and sometimes it's lateral and that's annoying, but um, in general- I had a friend, my friend Curtis used to say, is it better or just different? Yes, and that happens all the time. But I think in general, your ability to take notes from people who are good and give good notes is your ability to become a better writer. So in some ways you should be grateful that you're doing, you know, sometimes the notes are horrible and that sucks, but mostly, you know, people giving you notes is you being offered an opportunity to improve something. Mm. See, I needed to ask you that because I'm waiting for my notes to come in. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I have the right frame of mind. Yeah, and I'm getting notes and then having to pass them on to my writers, right? And so sort of like, it's that's a whole different skill, <laughs> right? Uh, which is fun. Everything's fun. Everything's great. All fun. Everything's so fun. All right, let's ask our last three questions because I don't want to miss them. Okay. Uh, what brings you the most joy about writing? Oh, you know, I really have so much joy in writing. I guess um, maybe first drafts where I'm just not even paying attention to what I'm doing really and just sort of listening and seeing what it is. But I, I've always been a person who enjoyed writing. I hear some people say like, I don't enjoy writing, but I like having written. Or I hear people say, I hate writing, but I'm a writer. Uh, but I really, really enjoy it. Sometimes I get really caught up. And especially now that I have a child, I wouldn't say it feels like a day at the spa, but it certainly feels like freedom to me to be writing. That's great. Jeff, do you want to ask the next one? Sure. Vanessa, what pisses you off about writing? Uh, well, um, you know, I mean, I don't know if pisses up. I, when, yes, bad notes are horrible and they make you insane. Um, but to me, it's more like when you have some plot problem that's just not even solvable and it's wrecking your whole thing and now you got to try and pull the whole thing apart and ugh, it's just tiring. Um, and I really don't like it when, there's sometimes a process in Hollywood, I think, where nobody wants to tell a difficult person they're difficult 
or set a boundary. And so what ends up happening is the writer has to do this person's bidding and then someone else is gonna come along and correct it. So what it just means is many iterations for you, you're being used to kind of placate someone, but it's exhausting in a way that I, I don't ever enjoy. Mm, that's insightful. Um, last question is, what scene that you've written would you like to be remembered for? Oh my goodness. <sighs> um, you know, I don't know if I have a specific example. My first spec um, or whatever, my spec that got made, um, Hope Springs, is just an almost complete representation of who I am. That question about are, are you the characters, are the characters you? As I said, in general, no. But in this movie, yes, I'm every character. I am in every scene. Like it felt so true to me. And it also felt like it knew itself so well. I barely ever had to change anything in it. It just was like, here's the story. Um, and the director at the time had asked me to add a bunch of things and I added them all and they all got cut. And later he was like, we didn't need those. And I was like, I know, like I just, <laughs> I, and so it was, I had such a pride, not even so much like it got made or whatever, but you know, the distance between what you're imagining and what's on the page, there's always a distance. Sometimes it's big, sometimes it's small, but you never manage to get every single thing right on the page that you imagined. And this was the closest I ever got. Mm. So beautiful. beautiful. So beautiful. Vanessa, thank you thank so you. much. You. It was so good to see you. Thank you, you guys. That was thank so fun. You. Vanessa, thank that you so good. much. Thank you, thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you. Uh, thanks everyone for tuning in. And if you haven't yet, join our Facebook group where we are around and answering questions and we have a wonderful group of people there. Yes, super supportive uh, community. Please join and please drop us a review on Apple Podcasts because that helps us keep going. And remember, you are not alone and keep writing. Wow, wow, wow. Vanessa, thank you so much for all of your insight that you brought on today's show. Um, hearing you talk about kind of the distinction between adaptation and trusting your own voice as a writer was really, really valuable. So I just want to say thanks so much. And, you know, Vanessa's advice resonated as much with all of you as it did with me. One of the best ways that you can pay it forward is to write an Apple podcast review. Um, what that does for us is it shows us that you're enjoying the show and it gives us a chance to feature your writing on air, but it also bumps up our show in the algorithm and helps other people find the show, which helps us book amazing guests like Vanessa. So if you want to write an Apple podcast review, we really appreciate it and we will read your review on air. Um, today, I'm going to read a review from at just MB who says a delicious swift kick in the artistic bottom. Of the many things I love about this pod, I love the constant reminder that writing is really freaking hard. Yet, if you can sit your butt long enough in the chair and allow yourself to sink into the lava, that's where the good stuff is. Megan and Lorian are able captains of this ship because they lead by example, carrying the proverbial lantern into the cave before us. Ooh, love that metaphor. Showing us the struggle firsthand, and then they reflect on how to admire the glow of the treasure when it arrives, how to hold it gently and own that tiny victory. Wow, that's really beautifully written. 
I revisit episodes constantly and will continue to as long as I slog along my very parallel journey. What a treat. Man, that was a great review. I can't wait to read your Oscar-winning screenplay at JustMB. All right, up next, we have SareBear0809, who says, Best screenwriting podcast ever. Wow, I can't say enough great things about this podcast. I began my journey as a screenwriter a little over a year ago, and I was scared, intimidated, and felt totally alone on the journey. With the encouragement and guidance of Lorian and Meg, I now have the confidence to make mistakes and the inspiration to power through the times I feel totally lost and the wisdom to accept it all as part of the process. Their advice is so incredibly insightful and thorough, and it will open your eyes to the possibilities of screenwriting without making you feel like a total imposter for giving it a go. Highly recommend to anyone who's just starting out all the way up to the seasoned pros looking to improve their work. 10 out of 10, you won't regret listening. Um, I love that review. It's funny, Sarah Bear. I feel so seen by that review. You know, it's like wherever you are in your journey, I think Megan Lorian are doing such a good job of making you feel included. And um, that's what I'm really proud of about our show. And that's what I think is really helping us keep going. So thanks for these reviews. And we're getting there, y'all. A thousand Apple podcast reviews by 2022. I'm feeling it. Um, in the meantime, keep writing, everyone, and have a great week. <laughs>